Church, this morning I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Exodus chapter 20, as today we continue our sermon series entitled First and Ten, A Study of the Ten Commandments. I want to read in your hearing Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. And once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 20, I'll begin reading at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Are you ever shocked at the things we forget? We forget not just the mundane, but also the monumental. We forget birthdays and anniversaries. We forget deadlines and doctor's visits. We forget where we placed our keys. We forget why we even walked into the room. We forget the answers on the chemistry test. We forget to make up our bed like our parents told us to. We forget just about everything. Yet when we come to the fourth commandment, there is one thing we shall not forget. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It's almost as if the Lord understood that you and I would have spiritual amnesia. We would have a bad case of forgets. We just simply forget who God is and how good he is and how worthy he is of our worship. I realize that if it's something that I place a high priority upon, I don't need to be reminded to do it. I only need to be reminded of things that I somehow don't prioritize as important. And here we come to the fourth commandment where the Lord simply says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Almost as if the Lord knew that we would somehow forget his goodness and the necessity of gathering with his people on his day to worship him. You know, the Ten Commandments were given to us so that God's people would stand out among the nations. We are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be different than the world. The word for the church in the New Testament is ecclesia. It literally means the called out ones. It's the Apostle Peter who says that we as God's people, we are a royal priesthood. We are a peculiar people. That word peculiar doesn't mean we're just odd. It means that we are unique. We are different. We think differently than the world. We act differently than the world. We talk differently than the world. We prioritize life differently than the world. We respond to suffering differently than the world. We even respond to a global pandemic differently than the world. We respond to everything differently simply because we are the people of God. We are to remember that our God is good and he's greatly to be praised. Now, the way that we distinguish ourselves among the nations is that we as God's people, we love. Remember the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So practically speaking, how do we love God? 
The answer is the first four commandments. The first commandment, the Lord said, you shall have another gods before me or besides me. That the sovereign savior of the universe demands an exclusive relationship with you. And this one who demands this exclusivity in your life tells you how to approach him. For you shall not make for yourself an idol out of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, or the waters below. Because our God demands that you give him all affection, all attention, and all adoration. And the Lord also says that the way you show that you love me is by the words that you speak and the way you live your life. So do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. That meant not only... uh, to watch the words that tumble from our lips, but also since the word name in antiquity communicates essence and character, we are not to misuse the Lord's name by our lips or misrepresent his reputation by our actions. And here we come to the fourth commandment. And the Lord says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Once again, in keeping with that third commandment where I said that that the third commandment challenges us to check every word that we speak. So here the fourth commandment challenges us to check every second of our day. That it's not only that we give God just one day of the week, but he's the Lord of all the days of our week. One of the common gifts of grace is that God gives every person a week that's 168 hours. You don't have any more than that. You don't have any less than that. I know sometimes we waste some of those hours, and I know that we can manufacture just about anything, but we cannot manufacture more time. All of us have 168 hours in a week. And when we come to this fourth commandment, I think the Lord is telling us not only what to do with one given day, but what to do with every day of the week. Because he's telling us that the Lord, he is the Lord of time, and he's the Lord all the time. So you come to the fourth commandment and God simply etches a post-it note in tablets of stone telling you, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That word Sabbath, it literally means to cease or to stop. Remember the Sabbath day, a day of ceasing, a day of stopping. Because I want you, if you think of anything when it comes to this fourth commandment, I want you to think of the phrase, distinctively different when it comes to the Lord's day when it comes to your Sabbath it should be distinctively different than every other day of your of your week so we remember the Sabbath day how do we remember it by keeping it holy once again once again that word holy means set apart that there's something distinctively different about the Sabbath there's something distinctively different about this day The Lord says that we are to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days, you labor, you work, you do all your work. And then on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath unto the Lord. It's a day of rest. He goes so far as to say that uh, you nor anyone in your house ought to labor on the Sabbath. Whether it's your son or your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, not even the animals that you take out to work the field, or any foreigner that lives within your gates. That we are to be reminded that there is a God and we are not him. One of the gifts of the Sabbath is that weekly reminder that there is a God and we are not him. So we do our work because work is a good thing, but we ought not be consumed by work. Work ought not to consume 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We cannot give ourselves to work all the time. Eventually, we'll just give out. 
So we are created in, with the necessity that we have a routine where we regularly remember there is a God and I'm not him. There is a God and he's worthy of worship. There is a God and I need to give him my attention, my affection, and my allegiance. There is a God and I need to be reminded on a weekly basis he is worth all of my worship. So we come to this fourth commandment and the Lord is telling us how we order our days. How we order our time. Yes, we need to work. Yes, we need to labor. Yes, we need to, to do our part. But we ought not be consumed by work where we're doing it all the time and we never get done with it. And we go from can to can't and we just always have endless deadlines and we never get to the end where we can just catch our breath. We remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It's here that the Lord hearkens back to the creation story. For six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And on the seventh day, he rested. The reason God rested was not because he was tired. The reason he rested is because his work was done. The reason God rested was because he was setting us a pattern of how we need to operate and how we need to orient our calendar and orient our time. Because all time belongs to the Lord. He is the Lord of all time. He is the Lord all the time. And so God is God all by himself. He's showing us a pattern. Now when you and I come to Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, I think that just about every culture has had a question about that creation story. People in our day question whether or not God could create this world in all of its complexity and all the vastness of our uh, creation, if God could create that in only a week. We have people that ask the question, how do you believe, Pastor, that God could make this vast world in only a week? It surely would have taken him a lot longer than that, years upon years, maybe eons upon eons, millions of years upon millions of years. How could God make such a complex world in only a week? Yet the authors in the Hebrew days of antiquity, they would have had another question. Their starting point was not the complexity of the world, but the complexity of God. And the people of antiquity would have asked the question, what took him so long? I mean, he's God. He could just create the world in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a flash. Why did it take him so long? Why did it take him a whole week? I mean, God is able just to speak and something comes out of nothing. So what, why, how in the world did it take him an entire week? What took him so long? The people of antiquity started with the complexity of God. We start with the complexity of our world. But all of us have a question when it comes to the creation story. Now, I need to tell you that I believe that God created the heavens and the earth, and he used an actual week. He used six days, and he rested on the Sabbath. But I think that he did that to give us a pattern. He did that to show us that for six days, we need to labor, and the seventh day is distinctively different. There's something different about this day that's set aside, made holy, where we remember who God is. So this day is set apart as distinct. Now stop and consider the original audience of these Ten Commandments. They were the Israelites, and where did they come from? They came from Egypt. Where, what, what were they doing in Egypt? They were slaves. Did they ever have an off day? No. Did they have any day that looked different than any other day? No. 
So what God is telling him, I have liberated you to reorient everything about your life. I have liberated you to refocus you, recalibrate you, to rejuvenate you. I have liberated you and nothing's going to be the same. I have set you free. Even the way you organize your calendar is different than it used to be in Egypt. Everything is different because I am your God and I want you to be set apart in the world and by your love, you will show the world who I am and this will be a sign for the watching world. So you'll, you'll love me in our exclusive relationship and that you won't make an idol and that you'll watch every word that tumbles from your lips and your life will reflect well my character and even the way you order your time will be distinctly different than every other nation on the planet. When you come to a place like Leviticus chapter 23, it was understood that for six days we labor, and the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord. And in Leviticus 23, it distinctively calls the Sabbath a sacred assembly. That the reason God gave us the Sabbath, according to Leviticus chapter 23, is so that we would have a sacred assembly, that we would have a worship service, that we would have an opportunity to get together to remember that there is a God and we are not him, to remember that he is worthy of all of our worship and all of our affection, all of our praise, all of our adoration, that we come together, that we are strengthened by the community of the saints, that we gather with brothers and sisters of like mind, we come together and we worship the Lord, and this corporate setting is distinctively different than the way we order the other days of our life. So we come together for worship for the we come together on the Sabbath to worship the Lord. Now, there were people in the days of Moses that thought worship was a waste of time. Can you believe that? There were people in antiquity that actually thought that worship was a waste of time. By the time you get to the prophet Amos, there were numerous individuals who thought, you know what, this is antiquated, it's out of date, it's out of touch. I mean, this whole notion that we set apart a day to worship the Lord. I mean, we are wasting our time. We could be making a lot of money today. That's what the people in the days of Amos were saying. In fact, in Amos chapter 8, the Lord says, enough is enough. You are trampling the needy. And how are they trampling the needy? Because they were asking the question, when will the new moon be over so we can sell grain? When will the Sabbath be ended so we can market wheat? In other words, when is this cotton-picking day of a worship service, when's it going to be over? Because those Jews, they shut the marketplace down on the Sabbath, and they don't let it open until the new moon festival's over, till the Sabbath is over. So when's it going to be over so we can market wheat, so we can sell grain, so we can make more money? Because after all, money is our God. Money is what we bow the knee to. We've got to make more money. This is not... 2021. This is all the way back in the days of Amos. Now a whole lot has, a whole lot of time has passed, but not a whole lot has changed, right? I know that some of you can remember a time even in the American culture when the Lord's day was a different day. Some things weren't open, some things weren't sold, uh, things were different, not everything was accessible, but those days are long gone. I don't know that they'll ever return. I think we live in a culture where the Lord's day is seen just like every other day. There may be an establishment or two that makes a distinction between the Lord's day and other days, but by and large, most of the marketplace that we interact in, most of, uh, of the restaurants, most of the uh, factories, most uh, operations, most things, they, they, they treat this day just like any other day. 
because it's a, a day to make money. It's a day to go on with life. It's, it's a day that setting aside worship is a waste of time. It's antiquated. It's, it's old-fashioned. We need to get about our business. In the days of Amos, the Lord said, enough is enough. Now, here we are in the year 2021, and our culture pretty much treats the Lord's day the same as any other day of the week. But there are still some people, like yourself, who gather for worship, for you remember the Sabbath, and you keep it holy. You keep this day distinctively different. But friends, you are in the overwhelming minority of Americans. Did you know that on this day, less than 25% of Americans will go to church, and those are pre-COVID numbers? I think that literally because of COVID, that number of 75% not going to church would uh, be north of probably 90% of not going to church. Just a few months ago, there was a study done that, that uh determined that most churches are somewhere back around 36% of their pre-COVID attendance, 36%. Now, at one level, that made me feel better uh, because we're about 74%, but it didn't last very long because we're still at 74%. And where do I want to be? I want to be at 124% of where we were two years ago. So the reality is, is that uh, today, there are probably about 90% of Americans that are not in church. For the first time ever in recorded history, since uh, people have been keeping up with these kind of numbers, for the first time in 2020, uh, only 40% of Americans' population could be found on some membership role of a religious establishment. Up until prior to last year, it was always above 50%. This is the first time ever in the history of keeping those kind of statistics uh, that the number dips below 50% to 47% of Americans that find their name on some religious membership role. In our faith family, we have about 1,500 active members. 1,500 active members, uh, and we declare an active member by someone who's coming at least 50% of the time. And pre-COVID, uh, much of our membership was coming uh, north of 50% of the time, maybe close to 60% of the time, because we would have on any given Sunday 800, 900 plus people that would gather for small group Sunday school and worship. But here we are in the midst of COVID, and where it used to be that 60% or so would show up for worship now, 60% uh, of our membership doesn't show up for worship. And I ask myself the question, why? Is it because of COVID concerns? Is it because of uh, spiritual indifference? Is it because of spiritual amnesia? Is it because of some deficiency in ministry that we just simply need to do better? I gotta be honest with you, all those things I, I think about, I roll those around in my mind, we talk about them as a staff, and probably the reality is, the answer is um, E, all the above. <laughs> I think probably all the above have something to say, not only to this faith family, but every church that gathers, uh, that, that probably because of this global pandemic, probably part of the reason why not as many people are coming back to church as quickly as we want them to is probably because of COVID concerns, and I understand that. 
And some of it could be um, religious indifference. Others could be because of spiritual amnesia. We just kind of gotten out of the habit. We've forgotten how good God is and what he's done. Or maybe, let's just be honest, there could be a deficiency that we're not doing that we used to do and some way of ministry that we need to shore up and do better. We're taking a look at all those things. But the reality is that when you and I come to the fourth commandment, God specifically says, don't forget me. And don't forget this day. And don't forget this opportunity to worship the Lord, to set aside in your weekly schedule something that is tremendously, uniquely different so that you can rest in me. When you get to the days of the New Testament, uh, there were a group of people that really wanted to make sure that religious folk like yourself obeyed the fourth commandment. Those people were called Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, I think they had noble intentions, but their execution was pathetic. Uh, The Pharisees said, now listen, we want to help church people stay in their lane. We want to help church people know what's in bounds, what's out of bounds. We want religious folks to understand what they ought to be doing on the Sabbath and what they should not be doing on the Sabbath. And so uh, they said, we want to help those uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, observe the fourth commandment, but not just the fourth commandment. Let's let's just encompass all the commandments and all the regulations. So what the Pharisees did is that they put together 39 classes of work that were described and forbidden to be done on the Sabbath. They listed everything. They said, we want to help you think through what it means to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, what it means to to rest uh, on the Sabbath. And so they had descriptions and prohibitions when it came to um, cooking, when it came to burning fire, when it came to writing or even erasing When it came to how far to walk, they numbered their steps of what would be acceptable as to not classify as work on the Sabbath. You thought that counting your steps was a new thing. It's not a new thing. It's been done on the Sabbath for eons and eons since. I mean, the the Jewish people, they counted their steps, especially on the Sabbath, because they didn't want to go one step beyond whatever that total was as to break the fourth commandment. I think this is why the Pharisees got so upset with Jesus. Jesus would not listen to their rules and regulations. Jesus would not abide by their restrictions and by their prohibitions. Jesus would not do it. According to them, he desecrated the Sabbath. He failed to remember the Sabbath. He did not make it holy. He made it unholy. In Matthew chapter 12, it is Jesus who's walking through a grain field. The disciples are hungry. So what does he do? He grabs some of the grain. The disciples grab some of the grain. They rub it in their hands and they begin to eat. The Pharisees see this and they say, no, you can't do that on the Sabbath. That's work. You're supposed to prepare your food for the Sabbath the day before. Jesus, you should have thought about this. You should have had a daytimer. You should have planned a little bit better. Jesus, you should have known your disciples were going to get hungry, and you should have prepared adequately. But you can't just do that on the Sabbath, let alone you're walking, which probably you're walking too far. And not only are you walking, but you're also working because you are rubbing the grain in the palm of your hand. You can't do that on the Sabbath. As soon as he left the grain field, Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He saw a man with a shriveled hand. And what did Jesus do? He healed him. 
The Pharisees went ballistic. No, Jesus, you can't do that. That's work. That is classified as work. Uh, see, Jesus, we have a clear de delineation of this class of work. You cannot do that right here. You can't do that, Jesus. You cannot do that. That's against our rules and regulations. And Jesus says, you make exceptions to all your rules and regulations. Yet this man, he's hurting. This man has a shriveled hand. I came, for I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Luke tells us a story that there was a woman who was in church on a Sabbath. Jesus happened to be at the very same synagogue. And Jesus looked in the back and he called her out. She didn't come for a healing that day. She didn't come to ruffle any feathers. She didn't come to stir the waters. She just wanted to stay back in the back. Jesus calls her out, calls her up front. This woman been crippled for 18 long years. Because of her paralysis, it left her bent over. She was in so much pain that she just stood there. And when she, she, she couldn't straighten up, and so as she looked at Jesus, she had to kind of look up this way, and she had to see him. And she probably thought to herself, Jesus, why are you involving me? I didn't ask for any of this. Jesus lays his hand upon her. Woman, be healed. Her pain was gone. She straightened up. She walked out renewed. Before Jesus healed this woman, the Pharisees went up to Jesus and said, uh, Sir, you can't do this. Listen, this woman has six other days of the week that she can come and be healed, but not on the Sabbath. Uh, lady, can you please come back tomorrow? Jesus, will that work in your schedule? Because if you come back tomorrow, what you're about to do is perfectly fine, but don't do it on the Sabbath because that, you will desecrate the Sabbath. You, you'll work on the Sabbath. It won't be a holy day. You'll make it an unholy day. So Jesus, please don't do this. And Jesus uh, 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 reaches his hand and he heals the woman. And she walks out renewed. Jesus said, you make exceptions by untying a donkey and leading it to water on the Sabbath. Don't tell me that you're going to make an exception for a beast of burden, but not a precious daughter of the king. She's a daughter of God Almighty. Should she not be healed on the Sabbath? See, what the Lord was telling us is that Jesus was, he was redefining rest. The Pharisees understood rest as inactivity. When you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath, what they translate that into was inactivity. You can't do anything. You've got to limit what you do. And Jesus says, no, let me redefine this for you. It's not inactivity because rest in the Lord includes acts of mercy. So on this day, yes, we worship the Lord. It is a sacred assembly. On this day, we gather with the communion of saints, the fellowship of believers. On this day, we do ministry of mercy. We help people because Jesus says that's what it means to rest in the Lord. That's what it means to rest in him, to worship him, to worship with his people, like-minded believers, to help those that are in need, to do acts of mercy. When I read through the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts, there is a subtle but significant shift. In a place like Acts chapter 13, we read that Paul and Barnabas went to worship in the synagogue on the Sabbath. In Acts chapter 20, it is Luke who tells us that the believers gathered for worship on the first day of the week. It's subtle, but it's rather significant. Did you catch it? 
in Acts 13, they were still worshiping on the Sabbath, on the seventh day of the week. You and I would call it Saturday. But when you get to Acts chapter 20, Luke clearly tells us that they gathered on the first day of the week. You and I would call that Sunday. And the question is, why did they shift from the seventh day to the first day? Why did they make the shift from worshiping on Saturday to worshiping on Sunday? And I've got a one-word answer. Easter. Easter makes all the difference. Every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, make it abundantly clear that Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. He was crucified on Friday. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He dangled on the cross to make us holy. He was the one calling the shots. He declared to tell us it is finished. He bowed his head, gave up his ghost. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, wrote a stone in front of it. He was there for the rest of Friday. He was there all day Saturday. He was there even into the early hours of Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, Jesus got up. The dead man began to breathe again. We say this every week because it's central to who we are as a people of God. This is central. It's the crux of Christianity. This is the core of the gospel. That Jesus died on Friday. He was still in the grave on Saturday. And early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, he rose from the dead. And he is victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. So you and I gather on this, the Lord's Day, because of Easter Sunday. We gather here because the tomb is empty. Somewhere along the way, the early church got together and they said, you know what? We think it would be a good idea for us to worship Jesus on the first day of the week. Because if we keep worshiping him on Saturday... If we keep the seventh day as our holy day, then, then we're remembering that the Savior is still dead. Because Jesus was dead on Saturday. But Jesus is not dead, the early church said. So when did Jesus raise from the dead? He was raised on the first day of the week. Therefore, let's worship on Sunday. So the church gathered because this is the heartbeat of who we are as the people of God. This is Resurrection Sunday. This is the Lord's Day. We gather on this day because my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Everything changes because of Easter Sunday. Everything changes because of the Lord's Day. Everything changes because of Resurrection Sunday. We gather on this day, the first day of the week, to remember that the tomb is empty. I know that you think that Easter happens once a year. Actually, Easter happens every seven days. For the last 20 plus years of ministry, I've been trying to convince people that every Sunday is Easter Sunday. If we could be successful in convincing everybody that every Sunday is Easter Sunday, every Sunday we'd have a packed house. Every Easter I've ever been a part of, they got people hanging from the rafters, right? I mean, people are crammed in there. Why? Because they think to themselves, well, it's Easter. I've got to go to church on Easter. If we can trick everybody, not trick, but convince. If we can convince everybody 
that Easter happens every seven days. Can you imagine what would happen? Can you do me a favor? Can you go tell your family, your friends, the people that you bring with you on Easter Sunday, can you just tell them next Sunday's Easter? Just go and tell them. Say, don't look at your calendar. I mean, don't look at, don't, 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 don't look at what the, 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 the day timer says. Don't, don't look at that. But I'm telling you, next Sunday's Easter. So you come with me. Because every Easter service I've ever been a part of has been crammed, packed, full of people. Because Easter makes a difference. Easter makes a difference. So there's a subtle but significant shift especially in the book of Acts, when the church gathers on the first day of the week. So then that leads me to these questions. By us gathering on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday, Easter Sunday, does that somehow contradict the fourth commandment? By us meeting on the first day, does that contradict the fourth commandment of the Seventh day. Is this one of the commandments, maybe the only commandment, that doesn't span the test of time? Is this one of the Ten Commandments that has a shelf life? I mean, since we live this side of Calvary, is the Fourth Commandment null and void to us? My answer to all those questions is no. Because in the early church, they saw obedience to the Lord's day as obedience to the fourth commandment. They didn't see it as a contradiction. The early church did not see that by gathering on the first day of the week, the Lord's day, resurrection Sunday, that somehow that negated the fourth commandment. They saw it as fulfilling the fourth commandment because the author of the fourth commandment is the triune God of grace, God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. So here, the early church would say that we gather on this first day of the week because we need a weekly reminder that the tomb is empty. So we're going to set this day aside as a sacred assembly. We're going to set this day aside as a communion of believers and saints. We're going to set this day aside to do some ministry of mercy. So in the same spirit that the Old Testament people of antiquity kept the seventh day, the Sabbath, so the early church kept this day the first day of the week they didn't see it as a contradiction and neither do I because our obedience to the Lord's day is a fulfillment of this fourth commandment because keep in mind that God gave us this fourth commandment not just for the seventh day but for every day he is God of all of our time he is God all the time so God gives us this commandment now as you and I think about the distinctively different aspects of the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday, I am not going to give you a list of acceptable activity to do on this day and unacceptable activity to do on this day. Because if I gave you a list of what's acceptable for you to do on Sunday and what's unacceptable for you to do on Sunday, I would be following the path of that little Pharisee that lives inside of me and lives inside of all of you. So I'm not going to fall prey to the temptation of a Pharisee to tell you this is the list of things that's acceptable for you to do on the Lord's day and this is the list of things for you to do that's unacceptable on the Lord's day. No, you have a great deal of freedom, but remember, this day ought to be distinctively different than every other day. This day ought to be set aside for corporate worship. This day ought to be set aside for the fellowship of believers, the communion of saints. This day ought to be set aside for you to do some good in the name of Christ.
This day is to be distinctively different than every other day of your week. This day, there's something uniquely special and distinctly different about this day. You've got to work out by the Spirit's power. Activities that God wants you to do, activities God doesn't want you to do, but I can promise you this much, God wants you in church. I thought I'd get a heartier amen than that. God wants you in church. He really does. He wants you in church because it's not that a person becomes a Christian by going to church. No, we don't believe that. A person doesn't become a Christian by going to church. But if you are a Christian, why wouldn't you want to go to church? Because there's something about this. Meeting in God's house on God's day with God's people. There's something supernatural that takes place. I can't really define it and I can't really describe it. I just know when it happens and you do too. There's something spectacular. There's something supernatural that happens when we gather here in God's name on God's day with God's people. God does something in the midst of the faith family. Friend, I got to be honest, when you're not here, you're missed. Really, I understand you can't be here 100% of the time. Nobody's asking that. I get it. Things come up. I understand. Things come up with me. I'm not here 100% of the time. But by and large, we need to be here. Because when we're here, something happens. And when you're not here, you're missed. Not just here in corporate worship, but in small group Bible study. Whether it's Sunday morning Bible study or, or the time throughout the week when you meet for your D groups. When you are there, something dynamic happens. Because God moves in the midst of his people. You see, I think that that this day ought to be set aside for some R&R. When I say R&R, I do not mean rest and relaxation. I mean rejuvenation and refocus. This is the day that refocuses me. This is the day that rejuvenates me. See, I live in the same culture you live in, and I'm bombarded by the same messaging that you're bombarded by, and if I didn't have this day, I'd go insane. I just gotta be honest with you. And some of y'all might think, well, you're almost there anyway. And you could be right. But if I didn't have this day, I'd go insane. This day rejuvenates my spirit. This day refocuses, recalibrates my mentality. This day helps my stinking thinking. This day helps, get, helps me get back right on track and prioritize my life in the right way. How many of us could give testimony that it's on this day that something is said, something is sung, something is done that really lifts your spirit? It may be something that's spoken from the platform. could be from the preacher. It might be from the Sunday school teacher. It could be from a casual conversation that's ordained by God as you walk up and down the hallway, but you walk in kind of down and blue, but you walk out ready to conquer the world. Why is that? Because God showed up, and this is a day of R&R, &R, rejuvenation and refocus, because we need this day. We do. We need this day. There's something about this day that God has chosen by his sovereign selection to work through in a supernatural way. I don't know about you, I just don't want to miss a blessing. I just don't want to miss it. Psalm 73 was written by a man named Asaph. Asaph is the music director in David's court. Asaph is the George Beverly Shea. He's the Chris Tomlin. He's the cutlass of that culture. And Asaph begins Psalm 73 by saying, I'm ready to quit. The wicked are winning. I look at my culture, Asaph says, and the wicked, they don't get sick. 
They don't uh, have illness. Uh, They don't get laid off of work. They don't get unemployed. They have pride as their necklace. They go around boasting about all the evil that they do, and God doesn't do anything about it. It seems as if the wicked are winning and the good guys are losing, that the good guys are the ones getting hosed. The good guys are the ones getting sick. The ones who say they follow God, they're the ones who are getting unemployed. Asaph says, I look around, and it looks like the wicked are winning and the righteous are suffering. And if God is God, he better show up and do something because this just doesn't seem right. If God keeps on persisting and letting the wicked win, I'm going to throw in the towel and I'm going to quit. That's the first 16 verses of Psalm 73. And then when you get to Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17, Asaph says, all of this was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I realized that God put them on a slippery slope. Then I realized that I was just a brute beast before the Lord. Then I realized I didn't really know what I was talking about. I mean, I knew what I thought I was seeing, but I wasn't seeing it from God's perspective because God rules with the end in mind. He knows the end result before the beginning ever happens. So he knows that the wicked will not win for all of eternity. God is in charge of all things. Asaph says, all this made sense to me only after I went to church. It was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Several years ago, Brian Larson told the story that the world was captivated by three gray whales caught off the coast of Alaska under a five-mile ice cap. The rescuers went and they realized These massive animals are trying to come up for air, but because of the six-inch ice cap and the jagged edges of the underside of that ice, every time the whales would come up, they get bruised and battered and bleeding. The rescuers knew if we don't do something, these animals are going to bleed to death. The best thing we could do for them is try to get them to the open sea. But how do you do that? The ice cap is not only six inches deep, it's five miles long. There is no whale that can hold its breath for five miles. What's going to happen? One rescuer came up with this plan. What if we drilled a hole through the six-inch ice? And what if we separated these breathing holes every 20 yards do you think that we might be able to coax these three gray whales from one breathing hole to the next breathing hole to the next breathing hole till they got to the open sea friends it took eight days and that's exactly what happened for a little more than a week rescuers drilled holes through the six inch ice cap And other rescuers coaxed these massive animals from one breathing hole to the next breathing hole to the next breathing hole. Craig Larson said, you know what? When I read that story, I thought that's what God does for us every Sunday. He lets us come up for air every Sunday. 
And he coaxes us from one Sunday to the next Sunday to the next Sunday to the next Sunday. From one breathing hole to the next breathing hole to the next breathing hole. Because otherwise we will bump ourselves against a frozen tundra of a culture that will leave us bloodied, bruised, and battered. And we won't be able to breathe and we will suffocate. But it is God by his spirit that leads us, coaxes us, guides us from one Sunday to to the next Sunday, to the next Sunday, from one Easter to the next Easter to the next Easter, one Lord's Day to the next Lord's Day to the next Lord's Day, and all God says is just breathe. Just breathe. And I will help you get to the open seas of heaven. I'll help you. I will coax you all the way through from one breathing hole to the next breathing hole to the next breathing hole. Oh, friend, sometimes we come to church and all we need to do is just breathe. Because of the events of the previous week, the frozen tundra has left us overwhelmed. And we can't catch our breath. And we just need for God to help us to breathe. You know, it was a little more than a year ago that this nation was captivated by a tragic death of George Floyd. And you remember the phrase that he said? I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Can I just remind you that God is the one who breathed life into us? It was God who breathed into the nostrils of Adam, and Adam became a living being. It is God who breathed his ruach, his spirit, over the deep, and that which was nothing became something. It was God Almighty who came to earth to breathe his last on a cross made of wood so that you and I might be able to breathe for all of eternity in a real place called heaven. It is God who died. He was breathless. He had no breath. He was gasping for air on the criminal's cross. He was gasping for air. And most people who died on the cross died of suffocation because they could not breathe. And Jesus died. His last breath was taken from his body so that you and I might be able to breathe. And Jesus on the third day was raised from the dead so that you and I can breathe. We come into this house on this this day from time to time, from one breathing hole to the next breathing hole, and we just need to catch our breath. We need to be refocused. We need to be rejuvenated. We need to be recalibrated. We need to come and say, God, help me. I can't breathe, spiritually speaking. The world is suffocating me. God, help me to breathe. And it's the Spirit of God that coaxes us from one breathing hole to the next breathing hole to the next breathing hole. And maybe this morning, church, you just need to breathe. You simply just need to catch your breath and you simply need to breathe. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Help us to breathe. Help us to know you as the great God who leads us from one Lord's day to the next Lord's day. And in your goodness, you help us. So Lord, maybe there's somebody here who needs to trust you as Savior. Lord, maybe there's somebody here 
who needs to repent of sin. Maybe there's somebody here who needs to join this church. Maybe there's somebody here who just needs to breathe. Lord, help us to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In Jesus' name, amen.